Welcome to the Feeling the Pale podcast. My name is Greg Ashman and with me for this episode is Ollie Lovell, teacher, author, podcaster and entrepreneur. Welcome, Ollie. Thanks, Greg. It's nice to be here. Thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast. Been looking forward to this. Been reading your uh, book, um, Sweller's Cognitive Load Theory in Action, which we'll definitely be talking about. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about your background, um, you know, how you got into teaching. Um. How did I get into teaching? Well, I, I'd always tutored students and then it was actually in university where I kind of got a role as a peer assisted um, tutor that I really realised that I, I loved teaching and I loved, loved education more broadly and I thought it would be a great way to kind of simultaneously hopefully do good in the world, uh, also earn a living and have some fun along, along the way. So that's how I got into it. So you did physics and economics at uni, is that right? Correct, yeah. So have you taught any economics or is it just the physics and maths that you focused on? No, just physics and maths. It would be nice to teach economics at some point, I think. But um, I think there are there's a lot of a greater need for, for maths teachers and yeah. particularly physics teachers, it seems. So that's where I've always ended up. And um, so you've, uh, you've recently written a book, um, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, part of the uh, In Action, in quote marks, uh, series, edited by Tom Sherrington. So um, could we could we start by like sort of, could you explain uh, where your interest in cognitive load theory came from? Yeah, sure. So I guess my interest in this whole area started in 2014 when I decided to try to learn Mandarin Chinese. Gosh. A kind of, yeah, trying to, trying to learn it in a year and get to conversational level and things like that. And, and that challenge forced me to kind of go down a bit of a rabbit hole exploring what it takes to learn effectively. Yeah. And part of that exploration took me on into the work of Dan Willingham, his famous book, very famous now, Why Don't Students Like School? Uh, and I learned about this distinction between working memory and long-term memory. Uh, and then later on, I found out the relationship between that theory and cognitive load theory. Yep. And I thought, oh, CLT is obviously something that um, I've got to look into more. And, you know, in addition to that, this is around the time uh, that Dylan William posted his January 2017 tweet that's the most important <laughs> thing for teachers to know. And I thought, well, if Dylan Williams is that, then I better get on it. So, uh, yeah, dove in. He's got an interesting take. Like, he thinks it's important because he, he finds it really, uh, I think, and I don't want to put words into his mouth, but um, my understanding is he just finds it really astonishing that students could be engaged in an activity and not learn something from it. And he, and he, that's the sort of, that's the thing that he was just like, whoa, blew his mind. 100%, yeah. Um, to add a little bit to that, my understanding, because he, he, I, I correspond to him a bit yeah. when I was writing the book, he said the fact that students can complete an activity, get the right answer, and yet learn nothing from it or really have no idea how they got there. And so we as teachers, when we rely on the fact that, oh, they got the answer, they must understand, yeah. that's often quite folly. Um, yeah. So we should be careful. So you hit the nail on the head. Or they're busy, they're doing an activity... So they're learning, not necessarily. Um, so how did the um, so how did the book come about? Because I know that there's like a series, and I know Tom Sherrington wrote the first one, which was like on Rosenshine's principles of instruction. So mm -hmm. how did that how did that come about? How did you how did you end up writing writing the book in the series? Yeah, well, I so I I'm, um, after I first got interested in CLT, I contacted John Sweller and asked him if I could come and say good day to him and meet yeah. him and ask him a few questions and he was very kind and let me let me come into the University of New South Wales and we had a chat and I posted that as a series of blog posts yeah and at that time I and I'm still doing like a weekly email to people teach all these takeaways um with takeaways and things from the from that I've learned from the week about education and Tom Sherrington was on that mailing list and so he came across my Sweller posts through that mailing list. Yep. And then, um, yeah, when they knew that they wanted someone to write a book on CLT within the series. And so, yeah, they reached out and I was, I was delighted to be, have the opportunity um, to contribute. It's a very good book. And it's, um, I would recommend it. Like, so, um, like, my, my PhD that I'm doing, obviously, is in that area. Um, mm -hmm. But books on the topic tend to be quite dense, like the yeah. Sweller, Ayers and Kaliuga book that um, you've, you've looked at, and, but it's quite a big book, it's quite expensive. This mm -hmm. is quite a nice introduction for those people who might be, into, like if you've read the, say, the New South Wales Cease 
report and you want a bit more. Um, mm -hmm. My only frustration with it is, and it's just a personal bugbear, it doesn't have an index. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. It bugs me books that don't have indexes. But apart from that, no, it's great. It's got loads of really good examples. And I like the um, the, the thousands of diagrams, like... Um, I've had attempt. I've had a go at occasionally drawing, you know, like what split attention diagrams look like and things like that. But I think you've set them out really well. Um, so if anyone uh, wants to really sort of pick up a book and get a feel for the whole field, I, I reckon it's I reckon it's a pretty pretty good introduction. Now, um, in in it, you uh, you you frame it, which I think is quite interesting. So you have a you frame it in terms of A B C D. E, A, B, C being sort of um, key, um, and then D and E. Um, could you explain that framing for, for people who are listening to the podcast? Yeah, so I, I was trying to look for a, a memorable way to represent cognitive load theory for people because you know, even the, the phrase itself, cognitive load theory, it's a bit of a mouthful. It sounds a bit intimidating to a lot yep. of people. Um, so I was like, how can I kind of make it digestible? And I came up with this idea, the A, B, C, D, E of yep. CLT. So the A represents um, the architecture of human memory. So this is the thing I was alluding to before, the relationship between working memory and long-term memory, the idea that working memory is a limited resource. And that's really important uh, because it helps us understand that it's important for students to have knowledge. They need to know stuff to think with. And the more that they know, uh, the easier it is to the, for them to think complex thoughts. So that's really valuable. This, the B, that's the A. The B is the distinction between biologically primary and secondary knowledge, which yep. is used, you know, as I write in the book, prominent uh, CLT researchers suggest that instruction should focus on biologically secondary knowledge because biologically primary knowledge, knowledge cannot be taught. And I'm, yep. I know you want to talk about that a little bit more later, yeah. which I'm really happy to do. So it's B. C is the categories of um, cognitive loads. So that's the distinction between intrinsic load which is basically when our, when our students think about the stuff that we want them to learn and then extraneous load, which is when they're essentially getting distracted by whether it be things in the environment or the task or their own, uh, their own mind even. Um, and that's important because the fundamental recommendation of cognitive load theory is to reduce extraneous load uh, to make room for more uh, intrinsic load as long as the, the sum of the two doesn't exceed the capacity of working memory. Um, the D stands for domain specific versus domain general skills and knowledge. And so this is an important distinction because um, domain specific skills and knowledge, and specifically knowledge in particular, uh, relates to things like a mathematician will know lots of equations and lots of theories, a musician will know lots of theories and things like that. Um, and the primary distinction between an expert and a novice within a specific domain is the level of um, domain specific knowledge that they have yep. whereas yep. Uh, domain general skills and knowledge are ones that span across domains they might be an ability to express yourself well or probably express yourself in a convincing way across domains uh, which obviously has a, a domain specific component but also there are some domain general components and there's other things people talk about like creativity and argue that that's domain general and things like that um, so yeah the the main point that that's the main reason why that's important is because as I said the primary difference between experts and novices is the extent to which they have um, really secure by uh, domain specific knowledge within that domain and that information is organized as I described in the book in situation action pairs so they're very quickly and easily able to recognize a specific situation and then identify what rule or procedure or what have you to apply in that situation um, and then and then E is the um, idea of element interactivity, which is essentially the source of all cognitive load. Um, and it's just the way that different elements of information uh, interact and are combined uh, and, and are thought about in working memory. And, and an understanding of element interactivity helps teachers to see tasks in a new light and helps them to see them in a way and be able to more effectively identify whether they're likely to overload and confuse students or whether they're likely to be um, manageable by students. Yeah, so um, the, the kind of like, um, if, you're, if you're trying to solve three X is 18, like if you're a mathematician, you just know that X is six. Now you've activated something in your working memory, like, sorry, your long-term memory, like a schema, just mm -hmm. triggered it. 
Um, mm-hmm. But for someone that's learning that, they've got to learn a whole lot of relationships between different elements, what the equals means, what, what the fact that the two sides relate to each other in some way, that if you do something to one side, you've got to, there's an inverse. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. One of the things I'm interested in, you don't mention, uh, and it's quite an, um, I don't know whether this is what the decision-making process was around this, mm-hmm. but you don't mention germane cognitive load mm-hmm. in your distinction between the types of cognitive load, and it is a problem for the theory. Mm-hmm. So was mm-hmm. that a conscious decision? Did you think, look, I'll just stick with where we are with the intrinsic and extrinsic because that's kind of where the theory is landed at the moment? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, I mean, I think germane load is a thing. I, I think that... Um, researchers have started to move away from it because the distinction between germane and intrinsic load is so you know finicky yeah. that for teachers i don't think it's actually helpful for them to think about this germane. so to, to go into the distinction um intrinsic elements within a task represent an opportunity for students to have germane load yeah. and germane load is cognitive load that is contributing to their scheme acquisition or their learning yeah i mean yes okay (laughs) but really for teachers you just want them to design tasks where the majority of the task is stuff that students concentrate on that they're going to be learning and not getting distracted by and so that's that's captured with the intrinsic idea and trying to explain the germane one i i think was going to confuse people and i chatted to john swear about it as well and i suggested look i want to leave out germane because i think it's just going to confuse people and it doesn't actually add anything for teachers and he was totally fine with that so i think he's he's moved away from talking about it much it so the the problem was that it used to be uh my understanding is and you know my understanding is imperfect but it used to be additive so you would add it to the intrinsic load and that didn't work at all because you ended up with all these you increasing cognitive load of a task and the kids learn more oh well you've increased the germane load you you increase the cognitive load of task and they learn less oh well you've increased the extraneous load and so all possible experimental results become explainable so you've got an unfalsifiable theory so now um it, instead of having it as a separate thing that adds to intrinsic and extrinsic, it's about um, germane sort of maps onto some of those intrinsic elements that you're trying to learn. And I've gone far further down this rabbit hole <laughs> than I ever intended. So maybe we'll back out now. Maybe we'll back out. Um, <laughs> so um, one issue, and we, we've talked about this already, um, cognitive load theory, it, I think it's fair to say it's quite controversial. Um there's quite a lot of people that, that don't like it. There was um, some comments actually by um, someone, I forget who it was, but quite high up in education in the UK about how all the experiments have been done with university undergraduates and then, but it, they've not. But obviously people, are, it's, it's a controversial theory and, and people throw it around and some people don't like, like it. And one of the things, um, some people probably just don't like it just because, but... Um, there are also some very legitimate criticisms of cognitive load theory um, that that cognitive load theory researchers really have to grapple with. And one of those is around uh, biologically primary and biologically secondary knowledge. So I was wondering, first of all, before we get into why it's a bit controversial, whether you could explain for people what, what that distinction is and why it's so sort of foundational to cognitive load theory. Um. So my understanding of the distinction is that because we've developed through evolution, humans, there are things that have been relevant to us within our evolutionary history for a long time, such as the ability to socialise, the ability to communicate verbally and things like that. And the idea of biologically primary knowledge is that all that stuff that's been relevant for us for a very, 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 very long time Uh, we have acquired to learn in informal learning environments uh, that you just naturally encounter through life. And therefore, we, you know, some argue that we have modules in our brain that help us to acquire those things. Um, So that's biologically primary knowledge. And then the suggestion that there's biologically secondary knowledge is that there's stuff that's only become relevant more recently in human evolutionary history. And it's been so recent that we actually haven't had time to evolve in such a way that we can naturally acquire. And that's things like um, reading and writing and doing maths and things like that and so the contention from people who support this theory is that 
the, therefore the purpose of school should actually be focused upon teaching this biologically secondary stuff because you're going to catch on to the biologically primary stuff anyway um, whereas we actually need explicit instruction to learn the biologically secondary stuff so that's my understanding of, of the theory yeah so like ancient Sumer, uh five, about five thousand years ago first time writing appears that's not an evolutionary time scale so we couldn't have adapted to a, an evolved mechanism for learning that uh, so why is it um why is it why is this distinction between biologically primary and biologically secondary uh controversial i mean what did you come across when you were researching your book yeah so there was kind of that there's that module idea yeah um which is very contentious my understanding is that geary supports this idea that there are modules in the brain whereas uh, he writes himself that's a very contentious issue kind of almost in the same sentence so geary's the guy that made this idea up of the biologically yes. primary and secondary yeah yeah correct thanks for that so so that's one thing and then I mean, I didn't, I didn't actually go that far down the rabbit hole of researching yeah. critiques. And the, the main reason I included it in the book was because of the weight that's been placed on it by people like John Swire. And I was collaborating with John on the book yeah. and things like that. Um, and also it starts with B, which meant it worked really well with the <laughs> ABCDE. <almost. laughs> um, so, but it, it is, it is a really tricky, and I'm really keen. I was excited to have an opportunity to talk to you about this stuff today, Greg, because yeah. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it as well. Because to me, I mean, in story of a research program, the quite a concise introduction to cognitive behavior theory that yeah. John Swallow has written, he talks about how this distinction was really a, a, a really valuable puzzle piece in helping him understand, helping a lot of these things come together, ideas that he had, and it was a final puzzle piece and it made sense to him. Whereas my reading of the literature in cognitive load theory and um you know i summarize cognitive load theory as a collection of instructional recommendations yeah. on the science of how humans think to me i don't actually understand what um what the biologically primary secondary distinction adds to adds to that i think that you know the the cognitive architecture is crucial the element interactivity is crucial um and from those things can be derived many of the the majority of the effects and so yeah, I'm 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 wondering about myself. What do you think? Um, okay, well, I don't. <clears throat> it, I I think it's found it's foundational, not in an experimental sense. Like I think the experiments stand and fall on on the experiments themselves. So if you demonstrate mm -hmm. that method A is better for kids learning than method B, then that stands on its own or falls on its own merits depending on the um, experiment. And it's it doesn't it doesn't hinge on on this distinction i think what where it comes from is you, you hear a lot of people and i think this is partly john's experience so john went to the states in the 1980s and was researching problem solving and basically there's a kind of uh, argument that's been going on for 100 or so years that says why are schools so horrible um, they're these horrible regimented places where kids have to sit still and have to sit silently and they have to look at blackboards and they have to listen to teachers drone on. But kids learn all sorts of things. Um, they learn how to hunt. They learn how to find, well, in sort of um, hunter-gatherer communities, I suppose. Kids that these days don't really learn how to hunt much, I suppose. But anyway, um, they learn how to, how to navigate their local environment. They pick up language, all just through immersion. So shouldn't we do that to schools? Shouldn't we make schools just these immersive environments, surround kids with books, surround them with you know scientific apparatus or whatever and then they can pick that up in the same way that they pick these other, other things up through immersion and so then sweller runs his experiments and finds the opposite he finds that actually no kids don't tend to pick things up through immersion they they require very explicit teaching but then you've got a bit of a paradox because it's evident to everyone that kids learn to speak um their language with very little instruction so it's odd. It doesn't make sense. Why, why is Sweller's experiments and similar showing this thing, but we're all very aware that the that, um, kids pick lots of things up without any instruction. And I suppose it kind of resolves that, um, that apparent paradox. And I suppose that's why it sits where it does. It's, it's not really, um, it's more of an, ex it's not a predictor of the, the the result well i suppose it is in a way but it's more of an explanation as to why you might get those results so you don't mm -hmm. feel that they're so strange but i do think there are problems with it like i think one of the most 
uh, interesting ones is when um, early years teachers say, yeah, but we have to explicitly teach kids things that um, would fall into that biologically primary category, like socialization and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, yeah, and the other, I think there's some validity to that, but I also think that seeing them as two separate categories doesn't really help because all the biologically secondary ones co-opt biologically primary um, abilities. So like reading and writing obviously co-opts oral language. So it's not a completely separate thing. And so maybe socializing in a classroom, which is quite artificial, does have a biologically secondary element that you do have to teach kids even if they have got this natural capacity to pick up, you know, socialising in a group uh, anyway. So I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's finished. I don't think it's resolved. Mm-hmm. I think it's all highly contentious. And uh, I've got some sympathy for the people that say, well, it's just a just so story. But I think it sits there really to explain what would otherwise be quite perhaps puzzling results as to why kids can't learn these quite complex things through immersion. Another theory could just be that they're just much more complex. So you can mm. pick up fairly simple things through emotion. But then I don't think that really stands because like going on a hunt or fi- finding your way around your local environment, they are quite cognitively complex mm. um, if you sort of try to enumerate the elements. So, yeah. So I, th- I think it maybe adds something. Don't mm. know. Yeah. I, 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 think it, I think it adds something. Um, I, think, I think that the extent to which it's been used to try to justify that some things should be inside and some things should be outside the curriculum is probably being taken a bit far in some contexts. Um, but I, there's definitely something, something there in it. Like some of the other examples are like facial recognition and the number of elements of, you know, there are to a face and the ability to recognize that is just humongous. It's not like a, it's not a conscious cognitive task of, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, his, his nose is about two and a half centimeters wise and it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's something going on there. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm just worried about the extent to which it's been used to justify certain things. Yeah, I don't think you should exclude anything that looks a bit biologically primary from the curriculum because you've got like this hard line that schools are just there for biologically secondary because for a start that as i say they're layered one sort of sits on top of the other so mm. the, the where one ends and the other one starts isn't entirely clear anyway um, yeah. but yeah facial recognition is a great example because we're not born knowing the faces of lots of people but we do learn them so and and it does seem quite obvious that we're biologically primed to do that but mm. no one is biologically primed to learn algebra um so yeah 100 percent, yeah and and to extend what you were saying before like um in terms of building on um you know we may all learn to talk yeah. but to be able to speak eloquently and really well you know there's classes you take like yeah. eaton spent millions on building a new hall to teach oracy so that they can train the future prime minister of prime ministers of the uk um because that's a skill that actually needs to be explicitly taught if you want to reach those types of levels of oration yeah um, and and, and, and so then yeah. a similar example is running so like we all learn we can all run but you know i'm not particularly mm-hmm. well necessarily but if you want to be a a um an olympic athlete you've got to you've got to learn lots of biologic what what would be biologically secondary things about pacing and uh, and you might have to even change your action for running and all this sort of stuff so yeah, I don't think I don't think there's a very very sharp boundary between the two, and it might be a bit of a rabbit hole. But I do think there's something in there. I think with what we're just looking at, we're looking at something that's in a quite an embryonic stage, and um, you know maybe in a hundred years we'll look back and we'll say, yeah, well that was when they were just starting to develop these ideas about blah, but we just mm-hmm. don't know what blah is yet, so we can't. So mm-hmm. we're kind of looking through a window into it rather than looking at the whole picture i don't know Mm. maybe that's a bit too philosophical (laughs) okay another idea again controversial um is uh, probably i think you would agree this i think you think this is more central to uh cognitive load theory is the idea of element interactivity so you mentioned Mm -hmm. it earlier and uh and we sort of went into it a little bit but would you like could you explain what that is and then we'll just sort of discuss why that's important yeah, so the way I would talk about element interactivity, as I said earlier, it's a source of all cognitive load. 
Um, and it arises from three things, essentially. One is it can come from extraneous load. So this is things, basically anything that can distract students, whether it could, that could be a birdie outside, it could be an image on the task that students don't need, could be a thought, a memory that they've retrieved from them, you know, from their long-term memory and they just happen to be thinking about it at the time. So that can, there can be elements, the birdie might be an element, the image or multiple things within the image might be elements. Um, then there's also intrinsic load. So if we want you from your algebra example before, wanting to students to do um, whatever it was, 3x equals 18, there's multiple elements in there and um, that they need to contend with. But and related to that, the third thing that influences the number of elements that a student encounters in any given learning scenario is their prior knowledge. So if a student hasn't ever seen the letter X before or the number eight or anything like that, then every line on the page is going to be an element that they're trying to relate and understand. Um, whereas if they're an experienced mathematician, they might actually see that um, that equation as just a simple, they've chunked and automated that knowledge so that they just see that X equals six straight away and that barely takes up any working memory space at all. Um, so yeah, the idea of elements interactivity is a way of trying to semi-quantify, think about the number of things that the student's going to be juggling in their working memory in a given learning environment um, based upon the distractions, what we want them to learn and what they know already. Uh, and that's important because as we know, working memory is a limited resource. Uh, and therefore, if there are too many elements, students are going to get confused. Yeah. So, um... So that's a, that's a good example um, uh, with the one of the things that I don't know if you've seen you've, you've probably seen uh, the Chen papers. Uh, I don't know how you say his first name. He's on Twitter. It's O U A H A O. I think Wahoo or something. Chen. I, I um, well, he did a couple of papers, and, and in one of the papers with Sweller and Carl um, Yuga, what they said. Uh, was that to, to understand the difference between, say, element, uh, to understand different levels of element interactivity, um, if, uh, you can think of the periodic table and you can think of um, mathematical equations. Are you familiar with this one? Have you seen this one? Um, so, no. so basically, if I said you've got to learn all the symbols of the periodic table, that would be a task. That would be quite some task. Um, and it would take you a long time and there's lots of stuff you're going to have to do. Uh, but each symbol is completely independent of every other symbol. So you could learn the symbol for sodium, learn the symbol for chlorine, but the symbol for sodium doesn't depend on the symbol for chlorine. So although it's a big task, you could break it down into tiny chunks and learn them sequentially. But mm -hmm. something like an algebraic equation, that 3x equals 18 one, I've used that, I've picked that. I'm writing my thesis at the moment and I'll put that in there. And interesting, you know how you said, so this is a bit of a digression. You know how you said about how extraneous load can um, can give can be uh, a source of element interactivity. Well, I didn't include mm -hmm. any examples in my section on inter element interactivity about extraneous load. And Swellers just given me some feedback, and he said you need to write about uh, extraneous sources of element interactivity. But anyway, sorry, I'm I'm, I'm digressing. But um, uh, so but but so the three x equals eighteen. You know, obviously you want x. But you can't just delete the three because if you do something to the three, it affects the 18 and they're all linked to each other. So unlike the uh, symbols on the periodic table where the symbol for sodium doesn't relate to the symbol for chlorine, the elements in um, 3x equals 18, they all have a relationship with each other. And so you've also got to process the relationships, not just the individual mm. elements. Mm. Um, so and I thought that was yeah. a good one because one of the uh, Chen also did the one, and I was going to ask you about um, criticisms of the idea of element interactivity. Have you come across those? Not a, not a heap, no. Okay, so... Um, but I'd love to hear about them. Yeah, well, uh, do you know Jeffrey Carpicky, the um, uh, retrieval practice guy? Yeah. Yep, yep. So Sweller wrote a paper with someone. It might have been Tamara Van Gogh. I don't know, someone uh, saying that our oh, element of interactivity, basically he said the testing effect, retrieval practice, uh, works for lower element interactivity 
But if you've got high interactive element interactivity, you need to study more worked examples rather than retest. Um, something like that. And I can't remember whether it was, it must be something like, because obviously testing works with high inter element interactivity once you've you learned some of the, you've automated some of the schemas or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, of course he ran up against uh, Carl Picky because Carl Picky is obviously the guy, the, the retrieval practice guy, and he reckons no, retrieval practice always works. And what is this concept of element and interactivity or you're coming up with that I've, I've and it seems, because you can't uh, enumerate it like, it's very hard to actually count these elements. He's, that was his argument. And his, mm -hmm. his other argument was um, no one has done an experiment where they've manipulated element interactivity and shown that with low inter element interactivity, you get a testing effect, but with high element interactivity, you get a worked example effect. Um, mm. And then um, Chen did an experiment like that. So he did, they had these kids there in Singapore and they were doing like, um, they were learning trig definitions, but then they were also doing trig equations. And so the trig definitions is low element interactivity. The trig equations is high element interactivity. And they found that, they, so they found like a very quick testing effect for the definitions. So you just show them the definitions and then test, 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 test. But for the equations, they had to do more worked examples. So yeah, so that was the story there. But it's quite a, if you, if you, um, I, th I think I attract critics of cognitive load theory, perhaps, and it's one of the things that they go after that they don't like because, and it is it's valid. Like you should, if if you've got these elements and they interact, you should be able to number them. We should be able to say there's eight elements here or there's twelve or whatever. But if it's something like, like if you're writing a paragraph, clearly there's lots of elements and they interact but they also interact with your schemas that you've got in long-term memory. So actually counting how many there are would be mm. pretty challenging. And so that's what people say. They say, look, you've come up with this idea, but it, it's, you can't count these things. You, you can't tell me how many there are and stuff like that. I've gone on too much about that. I'll, I'll need to no, show. That's okay. that's really interesting. So one way, yeah, one way to test that, the Karpiki's question yeah. is what Ohau did. Um, and actually change the task yeah. for learners with similar amounts of yeah. background knowledge. Another way to test it um, would be to just use more and less expert learners on the same content. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I would, I could, I'd say from my own classroom experience and probably most teachers will recognize this. If you have a learner who understands the process then getting them to retrieve it is going to be a valuable learning activity. Yeah. If you get a student who's less expert and can't remember the process, getting them to retrieve it is going to be a lot less effective than a worked example. So there's your there's your yeah. manipulation. Yeah, and that. So yeah, I think I, I don't think Kapiki's um, argument holds up there either. Well, well, that's the expertise reversal effect, of course. Mm -hmm. And so, and um, and so that's why. The expertise reversal effect is essentially an element interactivity effect. Um, they're, they're, yeah. um, if you're enjoying this podcast, then please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It will help people find the show. Please also share a link on social media. You can find the Filling the Pale blog at fillingthepale.substack.com and the archives at gregashman.wordpress.com. If you like what you see there, please also share on social media. Okay, so... Uh, foundations and controversies aside and all that sort of like slightly nerdy stuff <laughs> give us a basic uh, what are the basic ideas of cognitive load theory uh, and why particularly so just for the teachers that are listening why do you find it useful in your teaching mm -hmm. great um i would actually like to talk about one more controversy okay I'm, go on go on i'm, I'm relishing the opportunity to speak with you about this, Greg, because I know you, you've read probably more than me on cognitive load theory. Um, I, don't, I doubt that. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I'm very confident of it. Um, I'm wondering about your thoughts about the distinction between um, domain general and domain specific stuff. Um, yeah. Because this, this is, I'd say this is more controversial and there's more people playing on this, this debate than the, than the element interactivity one even. Um, and it's also something, you know, when we talk about the ABCDEV, I... DE of CLT, I actually emphasize, as you said at the start, the ACE and kind of de-emphasize the B and the D because I think the AC is the ACE of CLT. It's really yeah. what holds it together. And the, the, the D and the B have been included a lot in the literature, but 
but I don't think are as crucial to understanding it and understanding its effects and use in the classroom. So, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so, well, yeah, I've just, I've, I recently wrote a thing for Quillette on, on critical thinking and, and I, I think critical thinking is, is domain specific, but, and, uh, and I used an example, which kind of, uh, sent people in the wrong direction, really, or not the direction that I intended. So I used an example that was about declarative knowledge, and it was um, like Michael J. Fox, the third president of the United States, um, instituted Presbyterianism as the state religion of uh, the Federation or something. And it's obviously complete rubbish. But my point was that readers would notice that straight away. And they'd notice mm. it because they've got knowledge relevant to what I was saying that would say, well, that's rubbish. They might know Michael mm. J. Fox is in Back to the Future, but they also might know that Jefferson was the third president of the US and that the US has never had a state religion on principle and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, my example, of course, is about declarative knowledge. Uh, and But I was using it to show that critical thinking is largely domain specific. But I don't mean it's all just declarative knowledge. I don't mean it's just like if you if you absorb enough facts you will think mm. critically. I think there are procedures that you can learn. I think there are, um, uh, you know, sort of argumentative structures that you can learn uh, that will uh, enable you to think critically. But my, I think that they sit within a domain. So I don't think there's a huge amount that transfers from, say, and further away domains are, there's even less, that transfers from, like, say, maths to um, art history or something. There's there's not much, and you could be very good at thinking critically about maths and very poor at art history and vice versa, because it's mostly, but I don't mean it's just facts. Um, and what um, Sweller and Andre Tricot, Tricot, Tricot uh, argue is that um, basically it is all domain specific, that they could take quite a very hard line, possibly even a bit harder than I would. Um, uh, and they say the only thing that, uh, that, and of course, critical thinking really is a form of problem solving. So it all resolves eventually, uh, whatever abstract noun we want to use, it, it all becomes problem solving. And we have um, one evolved uh, strategy for problem solving, which is means ends analysis, where you look at where you are now and you look at where you want to be and you see if the next step will take you further away or not. And it, it consumes a lot of working memory, but we've evolved that. So we don't need to teach kids that. So really what school's about is teaching the domain specific stuff. And, and the reason I, I think that, that, that there's a lot of um, value in thinking things domain specific, largely domain specific, is just the lack of evidence for the converse. Like we can clearly teach kids how to write really good uh, critical essays in history, but there's very little evidence of transfer uh, throughout the literature. Transfer, transfer of learning is like the holy grail and you just don't see it very often. So you, you can train people to do all sorts of things in a particular area, but the, it doesn't really transfer to the environment. So I think the people that are claiming that there, there are these trainable critical thinking skills or a trainable sort of creativity that is general across domains, um, really they need to provide that evidence because I just don't see it. And in fact, when I look through the literature, I just see the lack of it quite apparent because people have looked, it's not like people haven't looked for it. People have looked for it over and over again and they haven't seen it. So that would be my, my take. What do you Mm. think? Yeah, I get a bit of a mix of things. I I think that as with the kind of bio primary and secondary thing, I think it's kind of similar in a lot of ways. There are, there are things, as you said yourself, there are things we can teach that are going to be relatively ge- domain general that are going to be valuable. So if we talk, talk about critical thinking, we could always teach students to ask the question like, who does this benefit, for yeah. example, um, and, or who's making money out of this? Yeah. And that's a question that can be asked in a lot of domains and lead to some good answers. Yeah. Um, if we talk about criti- uh, creativity, we can say, you know, combine two things that haven't been combined before. That's, that leads to a lot of inventions and cre- creative ideas and things like that. So there are these things we can do, um, but then you also run into a limit. You know, if, if it's co- combined two things that haven't been combined before, you actually need to know what things are relevant to that area. Um, yeah. If it's painting techniques, you need to know two te- pen- painting techniques before you can combine them. Um, 
so there's a limit to them but yeah and i guess i guess one of the areas that um i wonder about more is or i'm interested in more is this like learning to learn and kind of self-regulation space which is very very domain general generally um but the idea like metacognition monitoring your level of understanding things like that which is really the key to students learning independently um but is very very domain general but i think if we can unlock that then that's just such a powerful thing um so yeah, that's some of the stuff i've been thinking about yeah um and look i think yeah so asking you know who does this benefit clearly that like it won't necessarily help you much in say maths it depends, I suppose, on what the maths question is. But there'll be clearly a range of fields where it would be valuable to ask that question. But again, the, 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 I think there's kind of like an inverse relationship between the generality and the use. So like a the more general a strategy is, the less you're going to necessarily get out of it in any particular situation. Like if you know exactly what's going on in this particular situation and you can already answer that question and you have a lot more domain knowledge, you probably don't need to ask a more general question um because as you say you've got to be able to answer it like who does it benefit well you've got to know who all the actors are you've got mm -hmm. to know a lot about the domain the the, the situation is you've got to have a good situation model so you mm -hmm. can actually i mean you can ask the question but to attempt to answer it you need to know a lot i suppose what it does give you it gives you an indication of what you need to go and find out which mm -hmm. which then links to your idea about the study skills as well i think the metacognitive stuff is interesting particularly um, the um, like study skills side of thing. I don't think all the things that people call metacognitive strategies are really the same thing. I think they're quite distinct, um, mm -hmm. but the study skills stuff, like teaching kids about retrieval practice, I think it's a, a really valuable thing to do, but I would put that in the domain of knowing about cognitive psychology, I suppose. It's like, mm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. Well yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that's the that's the thing as well, isn't it? Because because I asked a similar thing to John. I was like, I was like, actually, like, um, cognitive load theory itself is an argument I put to him. Cognitive load theory itself is domain general because yeah. I just wrote a book and applied it to all these different topics. Um, and he was like, yeah, but we can classify that under a new domain of, um, you know, instructional strategies or something like that. Or, um, and then we could have done the same thing with the argument. It's like uh, the argument before it's like, oh, um, critical thinking is domain general. But then as soon as you, if, if we were to actually develop like a list of 20 things that you can do to think critically, oh, well, actually that's just a domain. That's just the domain of thinking critically. So it's domain specific to the domain of thinking critically. So it's kind of unfalsifiable if we, if we take it, take it down that, um, that, that road, I think. Well, I, I, suppose, I suppose so. I think the, the key thing is transfer. So if I, I reckon it's probably quite possible to learn an awful lot about cognitive load theory and it doesn't transfer. So you don't actually mm. use it in any way. Um, so uh, again, it, it, I think we have to go to back to the empirical side of things. Is there something we can teach? This is the key experiment. So if things are domain general. We should be able to teach students something in this domain and we should see transfer in a different domain. Mm. Um, and the, the, we do see that, like that does happen. It's just incredibly rare. And mm. we, we're tempted a lot and don't see it a lot, I suppose would be my point. So it, it, we, yeah, how we categorize things is kind of like a second order thing. The, the key thing is the experiment. Can we teach them things in domain X and see an effect in domain Y? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think it also comes down to like the extent to which and this comes back to like the key of deep learning, which I, I think is really self-explanation, the key to the extent to which the individual actually interrogates their own understanding of the principle and makes a generalization themselves. Um, so, you know, I, for some reason, I was able to learn, read this, these texts about cognitive load theory and apply this idea to actually make hypotheses ar around what this would look like in domains in which I've never taught. Yeah that's transfer. Yeah. Um, so I was one person who could do it and there's lots of other people who've done it as yeah. well. So what is it that enabled me to actually do that effectively? 
I think I interrogated my understanding. I really pushed to understand what was going on and I got there and then I was able to transfer. I'm confident other people could do that, like, but I don't know how to teach that. <laughs> like, no. And I don't know who does. Um, I'm, I'm sure some people do and it's been done, but, like, I, I want to know. Like, that's, yeah. It's, I want to know, like, because that's it's so important. I think the most, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, but I think the most promising is probably very boring and it's like study skills. It's how better to, like, Dunlosky's paper in um, American Educator and mm. I, th- I, I think it's pretty... It's the holy grail, perhaps, but it actually, when you look at it, it looks quite um, mundane. I don't know. Mm. Um, I want to get on to, so, um, could you, just for people, imagine someone who's managed to get this far in this podcast, (laughs) who hasn't really heard much about cognitive load theory before. What would a teaching sequence influenced by cognitive load theory, what would characterise that, maybe in the domain of maths or, or whatever domain you want to pick, and, and how would it look different to maybe a, a sequence that isn't informed by that theory? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'll pick a couple of cognitive load effects. So we could talk about the, um, also thanks for indulging me in that, that discussion <laughs> of domain general versus domain specific, Greg. Um, I could talk, I, I'd love to talk more about that. But well, we'll have to, I'll have to, if, you, if you're up for it, I'd like you to come on the podcast again and we can chase some down some of those rabbit holes if you like. Sure. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, so let's talk about, for example, the transient information effect. Yeah. Um, so this is the idea that when we require students to hold some piece of novel information in their working memory, whilst they use that piece of novel information to do something with it, um, that generates extraneous cognitive load. Um, to put that in concrete terms, um, a thing that a trap that teachers often fall into is they'll introduce some concept on one slide of a slideshow then they'll get students to do an activity on the next slide of the slideshow, um, expecting the students to remember the new thing that was on the previous slide, and they just obviously don't, and they get confused. So that's yeah. one thing. Um, another, another, even another simple thing you can do in your slideshows is, and this is used more PDs or something like that. If you're running a PD and you've got five key sections of the presentation, just having the introduction or the index slide return in between each of the sections to remind people, we just covered this section. Now we're moving on to this section. Here's the sequence. Um, so you're reducing the transience of the information and making it easy for people to track. Um, that's two transient examples. Another transient example is often, you know, especially when we're getting students to do a model answer, and you might ask a question, you get everyone, every student to do write a model answer, and then you say, okay, we're going to discuss some of your answers. A typical way to do that in the classroom would be to say, oh, you know, Johnny, can you read out your answer? Johnny will read out his answer, and you say, okay, Johnny, that was pretty good, but I would have changed this word and this word and this word. For you as a teacher, because these ideas are not new, um, they're already in your long-term memory, you can actually remember Johnny's response you can critique it and then you can give feedback and keep it all in your head, in your head at the same time. For all the other students in the class, they've just for, totally forgotten what Johnny just said and your critique makes absolutely no sense. So to reduce that um, transience, you could get a document camera and bring up Johnny's answer so they can all see it and then you could actually annotate it there or you could type what Johnny's just said. Um, it's, uh, so there's some transient ideas um, there. So that's transients. Yeah. Um, would you like me to continue? Yeah, yeah, no, more examples, please. Okay. Um, so split attention effects, um, the way I put it in the book, is information that must be combined, it should be placed together in space and time. Um, so one example of this is often we'll label diagrams in maths, the classic ones in maths. You want students to refer to slides A, B, and C, and you've got a diagram, slides A, B, and C, and then in the question you say side A is three centimetres long, side B is four centimetres long, how long is side C? You're actually asking students to split their attention between the diagram and the instructions. Um, And so what you'd want to do to reduce that split attention is actually label the diagram with the lengths rather than referring to it through this roundabout way. That's one way. Another way is just in in the way that we write and communicate. So if I were to to say, you know, human cognitive architecture is made of three components. You've got working, you've got the environment, working memory, long-term memory. The former is an unlimited store of um, external information. Uh, the, the second one I mentioned is et cetera, et cetera. Um, what I've just done then is I, I named the three things, then I split your attention and I started to talk about each of them by referring to oh, the, the former, the middle one, and the latter. 
and I'm actually asking all the listeners or to, to remember what, what the heck the first thing I want, I mentioned was, where, so I could reduce split attention in that scenario by saying human cognitive architecture is made up of three components, um, the environment, working memory, long-term memory, the environment um, is an exter unlimited external store of information, working memory um, is a limited internal store of information, et cetera. So I've reduced that split attention. And that's something that's relevant in writing as well. Yeah. Another thing where place where it comes up in writing a lot is the use of um, acronyms. So you, you you introduce an acronym at the start, CLT, um, yeah. in this paper, and then you keep on referring to CLT, but people who aren't familiar what CLT stands for, they'll have to keep on splitting their attention, go, flicking back a few pages and go, what the heck is CLT at all? So I tried, in, for example, in the book, I tried not to use any, um, I laboriously wrote cognitive load theory, yeah. even though the book was about cognitive load theory, but I laboriously wrote it every time just as a demonstration, avoid acronyms if you want to avoid confusing people. Yeah, um, and you get a lot of that in um, in psychology papers, and I and they're so hard to read, like educational psychology papers, because they're full of these acronyms. And I remember that's just, I don't know. Did you get that from Sweller? That don't use the acronyms thing, because he, he certainly he said that to me. I think because okay. um, for that very that very reason. But the I, the other thing is the flip side of that. I think the reason people don't do that. Because it's obvious when you like the other another criticism according to low theory is the oh it's all just obvious, um, but it, it is obvious kind of when you put it like that. But um, the reason people don't do the obvious, I think, is because they want to make things interesting. So the reason you've got extraneous details on slides is because they want to make the slides look interesting. And the reason they don't go mm -hmm. the environment, the environment, the environment is because they feel like repeating mm -hmm. themselves is boring. And they want to uh -huh. the former and they want to use different language and flow. So it, it's kind of, it's about saying, no, those instincts to try and make things more interesting. No, mm. your job is to try and communicate as clearly as possible. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I definitely agree. And it was really interesting in the process of doing, getting the copy editor to read the book because he actually came back to me at several points. And he was like, you just said that thing. Like you don't need to mention it again when you use and, I'm, and I was like well actually I do because I introduced five ideas in the previous paragraph and now I'm clarifying one of them and so I'm just going to restate it at the start of this next paragraph because people will have forgotten and I don't want to split their attention um you know see the chapter on split attention effects it's like, oh, <laughs> interesting um, but also yeah. it's for the writer it's laborious right yeah. it's actually to, for me to write cognitive load theory whatever many times I did in the book that was bloody laborious I would have made it much easier to write CLT but I'm not writing for myself. I'm writing for for the reader. You, and, you, you and, could have written and CLT and then done a fine and replace. Yeah, that's true. I should have thought of that. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, just to round this off, then um, it's been great talking to you. But uh, apart from your book um, mm -hmm. and um, books like it and chapters and things like that, what can we do? Like, uh, I'm thinking you think that it's. It's helped your teaching. It's certainly helped my teaching. Um, and probably teachers who don't know about cognitive load theory, and there would be a lot because it's often not taught um, uh, during teacher training, uh, would maybe benefit from learning back cognitive load theory, even if only to just become one of its critics and, and decide why they don't want to, to dabble in it. So what do you think we can do um, to raise awareness um, of cognitive load theory and, and so that more teachers hear of these ideas and get to chew them around and debate them. Mm. Yeah, I think all the avenues as, as per usual, podcasts, tweets, conferences, um, and all those kinds of things. I, I think, and you've got most of those covered, Greg, and you've, you've definitely done a wonderful job of, of promoting CLT and getting it out there. I get something I'm interested in is in terms of your thinking, you know, Dylan William, I'm not sure if he still stands by this, but CLT being like the most important thing for teachers to know. But for me, like knowing about the working memory, long-term memory importance of knowledge thing, like that is absolutely crucial. And that is something that a lot of teachers, you know, actively think the opposite. You know, we don't need yeah. to know anything anymore because we can Google it. So that is absolutely crucial. The stuff about split attention and transients and stuff, really important. But I think it's that's a way of refining explicit instruction, for example, yeah. that 
comes after teachers learn about the value of explicit instruction, effective modeling, breaking information, you know, instruction to small steps, all that kind of Rosenstein stuff. So it kind of, it kind of all has to come together. It has to, it has to be integrated into when we're talking about how to do explicit instruction well, and we need to get teachers to that point before we can start talking about these, these effects. Cause otherwise I, I feel like they're not going to see where it fits really well. What do you think? Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I kind of agree. I think that having cognitive load theory sitting outside as a thing on its own isn't hugely helpful, uh, again, for this reason of transfer. So um, you, people could, uh, hopefully they won't read your book and not transfer any of it into the classroom. But in principle, people could learn about cognitive load theory and it, and it wouldn't transfer. Um, I go back to my... so. You know, I'm obviously ancient and I, I learned, I trained in the 90s, never heard anything about this, but it was all quite constructivist what we we're supposed to do. And I was teaching science when I started my career and I'd go uh, into the science lab and I'd create these environments in which kids could discover uh, about the effect of surface area on rates of reaction. And of course they didn't. And I'd find myself using a form of explicit teaching. Um, but because I'd never been taught about effective explicit teaching and I never didn't know any cognitive load theory, the kind of explicit teaching I did was suboptimal. It wasn't as good as it could have been. Um, and then when I started reading about this research uh, later, I, I felt quite angry really, because mm. if I'd known this stuff, if I'd known stuff about spirit attention or, or whatever, all these little things that I now know that make explicit teaching more effective, if I'd known all those things back then, I could have been more effective, but instead I'd been sent in the wrong direction. And I therefore had to kind of rig this form of explicit teaching myself. So I, I think you're right. You're absolutely right. I think it's worth talking about cognitive load theory and it's worth raising awareness around it, but the, ultimately it needs to be integrated into people's understanding of an explicit teaching sequence mm. um, and how you could use those in specific situations. Like we can talk, when we do PD at my place, we. We can stand at the front and talk about cognitive load theory, but the rubber doesn't hit the road really until different departments start to say, well, what does it actually look like in my area? What would this mean if we applied mm. this principle in history or in English or in art? What, what would that look like? Because everyone can go to a presentation and listen to someone talk about something and go, oh, that's nice. But actually putting it into practice, and the only people that can really do that are the experts who are the teachers of that area. So I think there's a lot of, there's, I think in the future we'll have like, not necessarily cognitive load theory in art, but it will be like um, an exploration of how to integrate some of these ideas in a subject like art in, the, in an explicit sequence, teaching sequence, what that would look like, and but largely written by people who practice in that area. I don't know, maybe mm. something like that. Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, I think what one of the, in the book, I've kind of got like department meeting idea, you could do yeah. this. And one of them was, um, and I, this is exactly what you just suggested, you know, sit down like in your department and go through, get out some of the resources you use to teach stuff yep. and go through the effects, go transient information. Are we falling victim to the transient, to transient information in this instructional sequence and set of slides? split attention are we asking you know start with the stuff that students really find hard and really drill down but you've got to have the resources to start off with yeah. um but once you do you know really analyzing them in line with this stuff is a really great way to kind of prompt that transfer um and help teachers to really see the impacts and actually effectively change their instructional materials in a way that are going to it's going to benefit student learning yeah, and I'd agree with you. I think you said something really important there. You've got to have the resource to start with. Uh, mm. you, you can't do anything. If you're in one of these departments where everyone's Googling ne the next day's lesson plan, you've not got an artifact to discuss. You've, you've got uh -huh. nothing to talk about. So um, the very first thing bef before you start getting into cognitive load theory and all that is making sure you know what your, what your curriculum is, what, what we're actually doing here. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of undersold, I think. But I reckon that's yeah. pretty important. Look, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's uh, it's been a, a great pleasure having you on the podcast. And as I said earlier, like we could have we could have easily spoken for about three hours, um, but we haven't. So maybe we'll speak again sometime soon, and that would be great. Sure, great. Thanks for having me on. It was a, it was a lot of fun. It was absolutely pleasure to 
um, discuss with someone who's who's really well read in this area. And I also really liked uh, the ability to be on a podcast where it was more of a discussion because often, you know, there are times when I've been in scenarios and I feel like I'm kind of performing, but to be able to throw things back to you and have a real dialogue with, made it a lot more enjoyable and engaging for me. Uh, so thanks for being a great uh, uh, discussion partner. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we'll have to do it again. Cheers. Indeed.